2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com people today. What in the world is happening on Wall Street? Economic indicators. Who knows where this is going to end up?
1: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature.
0: This podcast
1: is powered by Acast.
0: This Margaret is Padraig. There he is, the
1: greatest Irish speaker. Can I tell you a story about him? <laughs> we were in the Irish College together. How are you doing? I know podcast time, I'll tell you all that in a sec, but I'm, I'm just trying to explain to JM about John and I uh, when we were kids. We were in the Irish College together in the Gaeltacht in Balavorni, or Balangary, Balangary. Balangary. And John wasn't that quick off the mark, but he learned a few things Learned a few things, but none of us were actually in fairness. We learned a few things off by heart, one of which was uh, Trucker 3 Park Windsor, which means 33 Windsor Park, which is his address. <laughs> and the Kiggerer came in, who's the inspector, and ro- roared at John, God is Alan Dutch. What's your name? John responded, Trucker 3 Park Windsor, Boginamon. <laughs> That's
0: fucking bullshit.
1: Uh, <laughs> They're all true. <laughs> anyway, it is podcast time. How are you doing? I hope your week is going well. Nearly crimbo. All is good. How are you, Ed?
0: Toguma. <laughs> <laughs> What's the crack? All good? Oh, it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. A funny old week. We were talking before that the podcast. I clearly wasn't reading the right material this week. <laughs> you weren't doing your echo. You weren't. So my, my week was taken up with Ziff's Law. But maybe we won't go into that. We'll move on. We'll Google it. <laughs> Google it. Zip's Law is fascinating. But it's... No, I'm not even going to go there because it's actually kind of complicated. But it's fascinating. We will get back to... What about, what about the Brexit stuff? It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's, it's just, you know, after, what, four years now? And they couldn't get it together.
1: Yeah, and it was funny, you know, it strikes me, if you look at the Brexiters, it's like fellas having a midlife crisis. Yeah that they're going to like, you know, it's a funny, and they said, I want to divorce you, right? But I wouldn't mind coming around on Wednesday when you make that really nice curry, <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if that's okay with you. And I'll come yeah. back and I'll, I'll come on, on Sunday as well will take the kids out. Yeah. But I'll put out the bins so the lads next door think I'm still a really nice guy. <laughs> and you remember the Brazilian chick I picked up in Tesco's? Well, I'll bring her home too and maybe put her in the spare room. But the divorce is still on. I mean, it's bonkers. And yeah. and, uh, and you remember the, cl- the club we were part of? Remember, you know, we get the... The cheap booze on a Friday night in the club. We'll yeah. Keep that as well, right? The 2.99 pints and the pub. But we're divorced, okay? Yeah. I'm gone. I'm out of here. I mean, it's
0: mad stuff. Absolutely. And did you see? I just loved looking at Ursula von der Leyen's face dealing with Boris. And she's just so disdainful going, You're such a gobshark.
1: And he's lying through his teeth. Well, it's the lying thing. The lying yeah. thing is, will really damage. The UK. It's funny, we're going to talk about France in a while. Yeah. But I remember reading about de Gaulle coming back from a French state visit.
0: Dougal, yeah.
1: Yeah, Dougal. Like, de Gaulle comes back from Brazil. And he was asked by the French press, you know, how was your time in Brazil? And he he just said, Brazil, this is not a serious country. Right? (laughs) Basically saying, you know, because the the great thing about Brazil is the, the great anthem of Brazil is Brazil is the future. But all Brazilians say, what about the present? What about today? Right? And England just, Britain just looks like a country, speaking of the future, that has a great future behind it. Yeah. You know, like that. And when I see the way in which Johnson and those guys around him, and it is mainly blokes, right, have undermined, belittled, besmirched, destroyed what reputation they had, It's, 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 it's extraordinary. And do you know the amazing thing is now what the Brexiters have achieved? It is far better to be the holder of an Irish passport in England than the holder of a British passport now. You have more freedom. If you're the holder of an Irish passport right. in Britain, than you're a holder of a British passport.
0: That's what they've achieved. Do you know what my girls have been asking me? Should they, because they were all, apart from Maggie, we were all born in England, should they get a British passport and have dual passport? I'm going, what, why do you want that? They went, well, you know, we can go to Australia or we can go, you know, whatever. And we don't we don't have to stay in the EU line. But I mean, it's funny you mentioned Australia there. You know, they talk about the Australia deal.
1: Yeah. This is the Afghanistan deal they have. Afghanistan yeah. is the only country in the world without a trade deal with the EU. And that's where they are now.
0: Right, Jesus. <laughs> that's bad. <laughs> yeah. that that's hilarious? great. That's really good. But come here, so if Britain, England, they're done. They're all washed up. What is Europe's take on this? Well, what is the future for Europe let, without Britain? What does that look we'll like? Do
1: a bit of, we'll do Europe in a sec, but let's talk about Ireland because there is oh, okay. significant issues here. What I was looking this morning was, you know the way you think of border towns being like Newry yeah, and Derry? The new border town in Ireland is Larne. Right. Because that's where yeah. the Irish border starts now. Yeah, which is yeah, yeah. Have you ever been to Larne? No. So I'll tell you a story about Larne. Yeah, right, go on. Which is the home of Sammy Wilson. Oh, has yeah. been going completely mad of
0: late. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Is this a, like Lauren is like the Hollyhead of.
1: Lauren is the Hollyhead of. Exactly. Yeah. It's exactly what yeah. it's like, of
0: Antrim. Yeah.
1: But it's a very, very, very strange town. And a friend of mine, her that's saying, Her mother was getting her car fixed in Belfast, in East Belfast. Mm. And uh, she had this old Merc, and there was a very, very serious rattle. She said, God. And she went on for weeks and weeks, and she said, OK, I'm going to get it fixed. So she goes to a, she goes to a garage. Next day she comes back and the garage. She goes to fix it, and he says, okay, oh, I." She goes, Are "You happy?" He goes, "I. It's great now. Car's fixed now." Mm-hmm. And she goes, "Can I get into it?" She goes, aye. And she goes, "What does it sound like?" And he goes, "It's as quiet as a lawn take." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that? An ex- ouch! Ouch! Exactly! Yeah. <laughs> exactly. She she just said, "Okay, time yeah. to go." <laughs> but that's the interesting thing. So the second thing is right. Okay, so we've got. Tariffs on agricultural products, right? A range of tariffs. Yeah. It means two things. One is Irish products are going to be more expensive in England. Irish agriculture. So it's going to hit agriculture. English products, agricultural products, are going to be more expensive here. Now, we do a hell of a lot of trade with the UK yeah. on agriculture. That's the first thing. That's a big, big, serious, negative implication for us. Second one is what I call the Irish Berlin Airlift. Right, right? Yeah. Which is how do you avoid the land bridge? How do you avoid Britain when you're exporting? Yeah. Because half a million Irish trucks every year go through the UK. So this is a serious, serious issue. And we've got to figure out how we get around it. And then the third issue is what's going to happen with all other trade? Because nobody knows what's going to happen. Mm. You know? Yeah. Like if we're doing a gig with, with a UK outfit, do we pay more tariffs? Do we not? So it's quite, True. There's, yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of stuff yeah. still up in the air. And uh, the problem and, is you don't know what the Brits are going to come up with.
0: Yeah, it, and it's also simple things like um, Amazon. I don't know how much shopping you do on Amazon, but I do a fair bit, you know, bits and pieces and books and gear and all the rest. And it's fine at the moment. But now they're going to obviously slap on import duties and VAT because we get all our stuff from Amazon.co.uk. Of course we do, yep. Yeah. So that's going to jack up the price. it be interesting to to watch that one as well.
1: well so it is, it's got a price implication, but the, the longer term implication is, I think it's going to be very positive for us because basically, you know, what happens is the Irish economic model, the other part of it, so these old models, agriculture, tourism, etc. Right? The new model is basically getting in capital and talent from outside the world, from everywhere else, fusing it together, re-exporting it and exporting it out. Yeah, yeah And yeah. that means that, When corporate decisions are being taken all around the world about, I want to invest in the European Union, where do I do it? Those 50-50 decisions, which were always between Ireland and the UK, Mm. because we're more or less competitors for that capital and that talent, they're going to come here. So if you're a French, for example, or Italian or German software engineer, Mm. and you want to work, you're going to go to the country that welcomes you. Not the country that says, well, actually, we're not too sure about your status this time next year. Right. Or if you're an American corporation, you're not going to go to the country that has no trade links with the EU because it's
0: useless because its market is so small in comparative terms. So I think, you know, actually, it's interesting, you know, uh, and I'm trying to think of just as you're talking there, trying to think the name of the company. But there was an American tech company that were moving their headquarters to Europe and they chose Lisbon over Dublin. And the CEO said for two reasons. One is the Irish aren't very welcoming. Wow. And secondly, Ireland has shit weather. <laughs> well, that's fair enough. <laughs> that is fair enough. But I might
1: suggest as a third reason for Lisbon. Go on. That Lisbon sell passports. The Portuguese sell European pass- their passports. If you what do you mean? Inv- if you invest an X amount of property, real estate, right. in Portugal, you get a Portuguese passport. Yeah, they've been doing that for a long, long time under both the right-wing and left-wing governments. Right. Yeah, and that okay. has made a massive difference to Portugal. So, how is, so how does that work? So, <laughs> if you if you are a an Asian businessman, yeah. for example, right, and you want to get a an insurance policy, which is your not Chinese passport.
0: Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah.
1: Okay, it's very hard to get one. Yeah, right. Yeah. But if you buy a big old gaff in Portugal, and a lot of these tech bros have loads of money, that's what they do. The Portuguese give you a passport. Jesus! Yeah. Wow! Yeah, and that's and then you become a European citizen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, but but the, the weather is a lot better, and the city is beautiful. Yes, this one is it a is, really, really beautiful
0: city. And food, probably right up there too. I think we should do a food podcast. Food. John's recipes. John,
1: John, <laughs> John, deep down is your man Yoram Otalengi. <laughs> yeah, that's me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Everything with beans. <laughs> Everything with beans. Anyway, so but I think Brexit, short term, a lot of pain, chaos, distraction for us. Long term, this is a huge boom for Ireland, and we should keep focused on that big prize. That basically, I've always said it before when your neighbor goes mad, all you have to do to look very sane is do nothing. And Britain has been possessed. It's like, you know, it's you know, the madness of King George. Did you ever see that? Yeah, I
0: did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Johnson reminds me of that. Yeah, he is a bit like that. He is, yeah. And you know, King George lost the
1: United States.
0: Oh, was that him? Of course it was. Yeah, Yeah. When I
1: look at Johnson, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They started saying they want free trade with the world. They've ended up, think about this, not even having free trade in the UK. Yeah. Because the Northern Ireland is not part of the free trade zone in the UK, right? They said they wanted a trade deal with everybody and it was going to be so easy to get. They now have the same trade status as Afghanistan. Yeah. It's bonkers. And they do half their trade with the EU.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So and they're and they're calling out. Well, look, we're just going to have this Australian deal, but apparently there is no. There Australian. is no Australia.
1: Australia has no trade deal with yeah. the EU. Yeah, there's it's no WTO. Over, there's, there's no overarching. So it's been a funny week. I mean, it's hard to imagine an act of self harm so extraordinary.
0: Yeah, as what Brexit has turned out. If it was a human, there'd be an intervention. There would be loads of interventions. <laughs> so. You've always been saying that, you know, this is good for Ireland and and all the rest. But there is a sting in the tail for this, though, isn't there?
1: There is a sting in the tail. And I think that we've got to park... In Ireland, there's a bit of been... There's been a lot of kind of Brexit triumphalism.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because... because Which we need to be careful about. We
1: need to be careful about because we've got to really understand now how different countries have different priorities in the European Union. So when the Brits were there, right... The Brits did a huge amount of heavy lifting for us, Mm. us and the Scandinavians. So they were lighter on regulation, lighter on taxes, didn't really want federalism. They acted as a major bulwark against the ambitions of France. So if you look at the history of the European Union, even though the European Union started in Italy in 1957, for the first 30 years, the three big countries were Italy, France and Germany. Germany, yeah. Then the Brits join with us in 73. Britain becomes a big player. The Italian economy goes into, not so much reverse, but starts weakening in the 1970s, 1980s. The Italian are still hugely significant, but not quite significant. So yeah. There's always a perception of the big three. Then you have German unification. So German unification happens 1989. In France, there was always this idea. So if you just look at the history of the EU, right? Mm. France and Germany... The two big players, right? Then the Italians kind of fall away, so it's France and Germany together. And then there's a massive change in France in 1982. In 1982, there was a policy. Mitterrand came in. Remember, Francois Mitterrand, yeah, I socialist, yeah. and he came in. and He says, "We're going to create a socialist country in France. Okay, we're going to do all this. We're going to borrow money. We're going to change this. Going to change that." What happened was the French franc, the currency, collapsed. Everyone speculated against it, and then the French realized, "Okay, if we want to go down the socialist route, which is pricing us away from Germany." Yeah. We're going to suffer. Our currency is going to fall. So the French hunkered down in the Elysee and they came up with this policy called the franc four, the strong franc. So they would follow Germany. So basically the French, they prostrated themselves and said, okay, the reality is Germany runs the EU. Right. However.
0: It has been hard to do. Actually.
1: Really, really hard. For them. And our major weakness is our currency. And that reminds the world every day that France is weak. Yeah. So they said, why don't we come up with another idea? which is a single currency. Yeah. So the way in which federalists thought in, in the EU all through the 70s, there was two schools of thought. One was called the traditional trade route of integration, so that we'd end up trading, 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 mm. and from the bottom up, we would integrate the economies. Yeah. The other one was this top-down, it was called the monetarist view, that we'd actually create a single currency. And by single, creating the single currency, we'd actually force countries together. Right. Because the objective has always been closer integration. Yeah. So the French in the, in the 80s said, oh, okay, well, we've come up with this idea called the Monetary Union, but a bit like Brexit. Everyone thought this was a daft idea because Germany would never accept it. Yeah. Because why would Germany give up the Deutsche Mark? Because that was the symbol of their power and it was the symbol of West Germany. So it wasn't old Germany, it was West Germany, democratic, federal, yada yada. right? Okay. So the French are sitting there thinking, we have this, this little idea in the back burner called Monetary Union, but you know what? It's really. You remember Jacques Delors? I do. You remember Up Yours, Delors? Yeah, which was yeah. The, the, the <laughs> yeah air, right? That's right. Yeah, so yeah. it was Jacques Delors' idea, okay? But everyone thought, ah, well, you know, it's it's kind of it's really romantic, French integrationist idea. Then they get the chance. German unification happens out of the blue. Berlin Wall falls down. Yeah. Mitterrand and Thatcher sit beside each other, and they're worried about what this new enlarged Germany does. Begins to look like. And the big fear was that Germany would go off to the east, that they would go, right, they would okay. revert back to the German idea that actually Bismarck called the Drag Dragnach Austen, the yeah. drive to the east, which was actually what Hitler did as well. Right. He always had this idea that we're going yeah. to be the boss race over amongst the Slavs. So the French thought, okay, if the Germans unify, they're going to go to the east. What could we do to drag them back to the west? And the French said, hmm, here's the price. So they said, Helmut. In you come, Helmut yeah, Kohl. Yeah. You can reunify with East Germany. We will give you your blessing. Because again, think that the French after the Second World War were a big power. Yeah. We will give you the blessing. However, it comes at a cost. We want your currency. And that's the story of the Euro. And the Germans swapped right. the Deutschmark for East Germany. So they swapped
0: Did they take a lot of convincing at the time? Oh, yeah.
1: But just think, they they swapped economics for culture. You know, we were always talking culture and economics. What what Trump's, the Germans in 1990 said, okay, we will give you our currency. You allow us to reunify. And the French got the Russians, Soviets. And of course, again, the Soviets at the time were traumatized because they were breaking up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thatcher and George Bush Sr. You remember the old Bush, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Into a room and said, okay, this is what it's going to do. We will anchor the Germans in Europe with the currency, which solves two problems for us. One is we get the Germans on our side, yeah. but also we get rid of our own shitty currency. Yeah, so yeah, nobody yeah. can see how weak France is. Yeah. So it was really clever, right? And then, of course, in Germany, there was a massive... And this war is still going on in Germany. In the Bundesbank, which is the central bank of Germany, there's a guy called Karl Otto Pohl, who was the chairman, okay? okay? He was profoundly against giving up the Deutsche Mark. And there's a huge subculture in Germany called ortho-economics. Right, this is, based
0: on your man's thinking.
1: Yes, and it's all about hard currencies and Deutschmarks and yada 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 and low inflation. But Helmut Kohl, who was the boss, and this is again what economists and central bankers don't understand, is at the end of the day, the politician runs the place, right? Yeah. Central bankers can talk about this, that, but at the end of the day, the person who has the mandate from the people is the yeah, boss, sure, right?
0: sure, 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 yeah.
1: So Helmut Kohl... And a guy called Genscher, who was his foreign minister, who was already who was born in Sudetenland, which is the part of Czechoslovakia that was German. Right. They were two million of them were kicked out in 1946, right? So he was a refugee, Genscher. And in his head, he had always this refugee idea that we would go back, that Germany's place is not really in Western Europe. It's kind of this of Middle Europa. It's middle Europe. That's our place. Right, okay. So there was all these machinations going on. The Bundesbank got rolled over, got steamrolled over. They actually gave out Deutschmarks to the East Germans because East Germans had no money. You think yeah. what happened? Like the Poor East Germans arriving, their their travens. They <laughs> say, oh, it'd be great to buy toothpaste and shit, yeah. but we have no money, right? So Helmut Kohl said, okay, print <laughs> as much of this currency as, as, as you need, give it to the East Germans. So it was a big helicopter drop as yeah. we talk about it. Same yeah. idea. The old central bankers said, oh, we can't do that. Kohl said, yes, we can And the rest is history. They did it. German unified. Then the French published a report called One Market, One Money through the European Commission, which basically said, if we want a single market, and this comes back to Brexit, what we need to have is this one money. So that was the process whereby the euro started. So amazingly, it was just a bizarre idea in somebody's head in the 80s. But timing was everything then. Timing was everything. German unification happens. Boom. They take their chance. Now, the lesson for us is think about the way the French
0: operate there. Can I just ask you before you before yeah. you go there? So is, is order economics still
1: a thing? It not only is it a thing, in the summer, John, this summer just gone. Yeah. The German constitutional court, do you might remember right. this?
0: Yes, okay. Issued
1: a piece of an opinion Yeah. which said that the European Central Bank helicopter money drop buying all the stuff that I think is the right thing to do that we've talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah, was unconstitutional. Right, So the ordo economics idea is still very much there in yeah. Germany. However, the ECB said, lads, it could be unconstitutional to you, but you're only one member. Yeah, you're, you're no longer the powerful member. So what has happened is France, and again, who's on the top of the ECB now? Christine Lagarde, a French person. Yeah. Right? France has engineered an amazing takeover of the large institutions of the European Union. So we should never underestimate them and we should listen very clearly and very, very attentively because if you think of how they've done it, France has increased its muscle at a time when its economic power has been in decline. Mm. That's quite an achievement. Yeah. You know, because usually they go hand in hand. And and you reckon this down to Macron? Let's look at Macron now, right? So the big beasts are all gone. Thatcher, Cole, Mitterrand. Old school. Old school. Even Gorbachev. Gorbachev's the only one still alive. Oh, yeah. She's the only one still alive. Now, look at the new generation. The Brits have gone, so they're out of the picture. Amazingly out of the picture when they had so much influence. Now, they have no influence, they're gone, right? So then you have Angela Merkel. She's going in August. She's retiring. Yeah. Even though everybody in Germany wants her to stick around, she said, look, I'm too
0: old. She's the big mama, but she's She's,
1: old now and she's sick, isn't she? I think she's got some health issues. There is some speculation that she has some health issues... Also, she's been around a long, long time. Yeah. So, who who's left? Macron
0: Yeah. is the major power. It, there's nobody powerful enough to take over from Merkel well, in Germany. Well,
1: Merkel's party's in disarray. Merkel's party's the Christian Democrats. Yeah,
0: she's the only one who's actually keeping it together and, at the
1: moment. Yeah, and the, their anointed leader, who Merkel anointed, has resigned. Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah,
0: yeah. And that was quite recently. So, yeah. the Social
1: Democrats are in total state of flux in Germany as well. So the ballast in Germany is changing. So in terms of Europe, yeah. it'll take time for Germany to sort itself out. Yeah. In the meantime, Macron could well be a second-term president. And we always know that second-term presidents, if it's in the United States or anywhere, it's the legacy president.
0: Yeah, so yeah, the yeah. first
1: term you get the stuff done and you elbow out your yeah. opposition and you destroy people around you. Second is, right. now look at me. Look yeah. at me, I'm the beginning. You know, I, I, I'm the dog's bollocks. Yeah. So he gets his stuff done and I think what we should do now is let's go to France because okay. the sting in the tail is if the French federalists decide to go for closer and closer and closer economic union with France on top, with the Brits out of the equation now who can't stop it, implication for Ireland, and tax, and the way in which Europe works is really profound. But first, I think... Let's go to Paris. Little Gallic flavor on the basis of the, you, okay. your your aterlengi uh-huh. Portuguese fruit. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's go to Paris. Talk to Geraldine Amiel, old mate, bureau chief of Bloomberg. Finger on the pulse. Let's go to France, John. We're either doing something really, really right or really, really wrong.
0: There's a surprise.
1: I know because this bit we're going to talk about Europe. Yeah. Because this section, John, we're going to do in conjunction with the Department of Foreign Affairs, Communicating Europe Initiative, because they obviously want people to talk about Europe. They want people to figure out what's going to go on. Good, good, good. And uh, we're going to the dark side. (laughs) (laughs) I'm talking to Geraldine Amiel, who I met many years ago now when I was uh, scooting around Paris. She was Ah. then and still is now the Bureau Chief of Bloomberg in Paris. Geraldine, how are you? Are you I'm fine. in good Thank form?
2: Thank you very much. <laughs> I am, I am. How are you?
1: <laughs> I am great, I'm great. But let's just talk. We have a quick hit on Brexit, okay? In the last mm. week, in the last week, the British papers have said, if it wasn't for the French, we'd get a deal. Tell me. what. Oh,
2: that's wonderful. That's wonderful. You know that France and, and, and the UK have been... Um, at each other's throats for centuries it's 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 no wonder when you ask rugby fans here in France who are their worst enemies they wouldn't say Germany they would say the Brits so there are there's you know bad blood uh, for a long time and uh, of course uh, France is the um, usual suspect or um, the uh, obvious scapegoat but France is not alone in its fight over the fishing waters and the interests France is absolutely not alone. The Dutch, for one, uh, the Danes, I think as well, um, it's been quite supported. So it's very easy to point the fingers at the French, but um, the Brits know very well it's not just the French. At the same time, the French are making no mystery of, of where they stand. Uh, they want access to the British waters, which are the ones with the most fishes. They still want also you know, so, uh, some sort of a level playing field. Uh, and that's very normal. I mean, Ireland is part of the EU and knows very well that it's it's also in its interest. So um, this is where it stands. Unfortunately, it looks like a no deal right now is uh, likely, a no, no deal of the future relationship. And um, in Brussels, after the summit, most of the EU leaders were actually sort of showing a lower interest for the topic, yes. <laughs>
1: Well this actually I want to talk about France let's talk about Macron because the one thing we know is with Britain gone a certain bias a certain world view will leave the European stage and the role of France will become even more significant than it was when Britain was 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 part of the EU what does Macron want for Europe? Before I talk about France and before I talk about all sorts of things, the Islamic issue and all sorts of things, what happening in France, what does Macron want for Europe, do you think?
2: Well, this is very interesting. Macron always wanted more sovereignty. And he said it from the start. Remember, when uh, he, uh, he ran for president in 2017, he had a European platform, contrary to many other candidates, contrary to previous presidential campaigns where it was easy to do some EU bashing, that was actually gaining new voters, or so they thought. So Macron wants more sovereignty, he wants more power. He made no mystery that he wanted Europe to have a defense way and sort of like pushing a little bit Germany over this. Until now, the EU was sort of like expecting the US to come to its rescue or to uh, save the day or to fight the battle that Europe would want to fight or wanted to fight but was not uh, fighting for the lack of means and also for the lack of unity over this. France and the UK were also leading the way and now France is fighting itself on its own basically. So Germany has a little bit come back on this, even though you, you can obviously see that they have an issue being a leader within Europe for historical reasons, I suspect. But Macron wants Europe to have a bigger role, to have a, its own weight, to be a might of its own that China and the US would consider as equal, which is not the case for now. So that means more unity. That means the rule of law as well, as uh, was demonstrated today during the uh, EU summit. That—that's the ambitions are.
1: Macron is more in the in the old French mode. Uh, somebody who sees the European Union as the major vehicle for strengthening Europe in a, a, a weight against the United States now, a weight against China, being more centralized. Is that is that is sort of play? Because what I want to do is I want to talk about how the French feel about this. But I just first of all talk to me about Macron.
2: So they, well, you know what I, I I think I would disagree with you. If I stick to the facts and to the comments that were made, I think Macron is more European than his predecessors. The predecessors wanted Europe to serve as, a, as some sort of a stepboard for for France, not oh, for right. Europe. Okay, so. Remember that? Yes, that's true, actually. I yeah, yeah, yeah. know. Yeah, Remember De Gaulle? I mean, it was interesting. And then De Gaulle was speaking about Europe as this thing, you know, that stuff, le machin in French, which is very colloquial. Macron rather poses as more European than his predecessors. It's not about France supposedly, from what we can see, and more about Europe this time. Still, some of France's partners might have difficulties to believe that, simply because, indeed, Macron's predecessors were all about France first and Europe yes. serving as a springboard for France. So,
1: so Macron's turning this around, but let, let's, let's talk about Macron, because I, when, when he first got into power, I read these things about Macron. The French press were called a Jupiterian, was it? A president? What is that?
2: Absolutely well Jupiter is the Yeah but, uh, a,
1: but again translated <laughs> for me in, in you know in non no, non cosmic yeah, terms
2: yeah yeah, yeah yeah so that's what the french media called him but that's actually he he actually uh, coined that expression saying um actually it, he wanted to contrast with his predecessor Francois Hollande who wanted to be a normal president. But what is a normal president in a presidential regime, in a presidential democracy as in France? Taking the bus doesn't make any sense. And the French actually do expect their leaders to behave with dignity, distance and somehow prestige. It's very important. And so Macron wanted, I think, to reinforce this saying, contrary to my predecessor, (laughs) <laughs> who had like polls as low as like three percent of approval polls? That's terrible. But was behaving like too normally, too, uh, too commonly. He, he also was
1: very common. To, I remember he went to he was having this affair on the back of a Vespa of all things. You remember
2: he used yeah, to go, to, he, used yeah, to go scooter, yeah, he used to go to his lover. He used to go to his lover on the back yeah, of a Vespa. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, far yeah, too normal. The, That's yeah, far too suburban. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Probably, probably. Who am I to say what is common and not common? But in any case, when uh, Macron used the Jupiter expression, I think that was about it. That was about, you know, making sure that there's a distance. And now, of course, it's been like sort of distorted in the sense that, yeah, Jupiter is the god of gods, right? So it's distorted like he's Who does does he think he is? Like, is is the president? Fair enough, but he he can't lecture us. He can't be like above us. He's also just one citizen. So I suspect the French are of two minds with this Jupiterian stance. Uh, They want more dignity. They want dignity. They want prestige. They want they want distance. Uh, They don't want someone who's too close to the people. And you do recall that um, Macron did travel around the French overseas territories and in one of these trips it was like seen with people were bare-chested and it it didn't go well in the media with our in the public opinion actually because it was like sort of like He's like fretting with, you know, communists should be doing is, that. This
1: is really interesting because, you know, our, our friend uh, Putin loves to bear his chest and be a man of the people and, you know, can open an bear in Siberia. But this is very interesting that you're saying that the French still want the prestige and the, and a the little bit of a mystery. and
2: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, mystery I don't know about, but definitely they want dignity, prestige, they want distance, but not too much of it, of course. So um, they want it all.
1: Tell me, Geraldine, about Islam and France. It's hard for us to get a feel for what's actually happening in France. But I I watched Macron, and I watched his very, very forthright, very definitive, very unambiguous stance on Islam, on the wearing of any sort of outward symbol of religion, of mixing religion with the Constitution. Please explain that to us, the extent to which this is kind of fundamental to French view of the world.
2: Okay, this is about French secularism. This is about the way you can live your religion in France. Since 1905, um, there's a law that says, that stipulates actually, that you can live whatever your religion is, you can live it freely, but privately. At home, wherever, privately. You. Just can't have public demonstrations um, like that. You can't, and if it disrupts public peace, then it becomes an issue. In 1905, it was definitely aimed at preventing the very mighty Catholic Church back then from influencing. The public debates, for instance, when abortion was made lawful back in 1973, indeed the church, like sort of, like tried to influence the votes, but could not really because that law was sort of preventing that uh, public opinion from being uh, too out loud. Now, because Islam has a way of expressing itself, for instance, women wearing a veil is part of it, uh, but not only. It's also about some Rajput wearing a turban, for instance, or a Sikh.
1: Yeah, wearing a um, turban. Yep. Yeah.
2: Wearing a turban. You know, it's just that. And the public arena has to remain free of religious signs if they are deemed as, you know, uh, imposing themselves upon other people. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's a principle. So um, the Catholic are not so much out in the open right now, and, and rather um, the people who. Wear a veil or want to pray outside, and everything I feel targeted. And uh, there were not so many Muslims in France until after the Second World War, when they were invited, notably from North Africa, they were invited to come and work in France. So right now, you don't have any Muslim political party as such because they have difficulties congregating themselves. Uh, there's indeed a party that was created in 2012, but it's it's failing to corral people. Simply because the system seems to be working according to a lot of Muslims, um, we at Bloomberg recently talked to, they rather express themselves via the traditional parties, for instance. Uh, and normally, they most of them tend to go to the left parties, actually. What is sort of happening right now is that it sort of to, it seems to crystallize because when Macron Put this law together. It was because it was it was seeing what we've been sort of seeing for a few years now is a push by younger generations to express themselves according to their religious beliefs. Yes, and with the fear that you would have communities, we call it communitarism here in France, to fear you would have communities that would actually sort of breach that uh, secularism pact that exists in France.
1: And and so tell me, so you know, an Islamic girl, okay, wearing a hajib, Right, going to school. Is that in Macron's view now an, an affront or a threat or a or a disrespect to French secularism? And is that the is that where the debate has focused? And is that what's well, actually like?
2: It's it's not Macron's as such. It's the French Republic laws that is being uh, breached if the veil is, is worn as a demonstration, as a way to impose one's religions upon another.
1: That's the low. So tell me, Geraldine, are we talking about a deep culture war now in France? Because last time I was over in France was actually during the the presidential election, the Macron versus Le Pen. And there was a there was a definite sense of a culture war, and Le Pen was very much riding high until she stopped. But now we're talking about is it a deep culture war? Because basically, this is the culture war that lots and lots of people on the right. Have been warning about for a long, long time the clash of civilizations the the idea that Europe is old and Christian Europe is old and fragile, and there's this new Islamic world emerging, and the suburbs are being lost by the French state to people who are basically, as you said, who aren't respecting the French and the same thing might happen in Germany, the same thing might happen in Holland, same thing might happen in maybe Italy, some parts of Spain. Do you see it in that way?
2: Very, very good point. Some, on the extremes of, of the political spectrum, would want the others to believe that that there's a cultural war. Truth is, there are six million Muslims in France for some time, and they're actually now slowly but surely get integrated. They might not like being pointed out because some people are killing on behalf of Islam, wrongly killing on behalf of Islam. But if you look at that over the past three generations, they are integrating, they are integrated. The reason why it's slower might not be because of the religious difference. Uh, after all, France is a Mediterranean country and some are coming from Mediterranean countries and there's, there's, a, there's a common culture here, but it might have to do actually rather with the uh, many economical crises that the country has been through that is a slowing. How do you integrate? You integrate via work, for instance. You integrate if you go to a plant, you start working on the line and you're part of a team and you have to like sort of abide yeah, to sure, the, the And company. you get to know That's each other. Things. You get to know each other, you get to talk and everything. And this is why, you know, some generations, previous generations are better integrated than the new ones. The new ones, because of the uberization of the economy, I find it more difficult when you are uh, your own uh, manager, when you drive for instance, a car well you 're on your own it's just it 's that you just don 't confront your beliefs with others' beliefs just don 't see others' culture i'm not sure we can talk about a cultural war i 'm not sure we can talk about a clash of civilization. It would really certainly be very helpful for some if a majority of French people were to believe that. This is why it's important a lot of people also want to be protected from these stereotypes. They want to be protected from blind violence uh, and crime, sure. and, and this is what this law is also about. It's about also addressing that. In France, the next presidential election will be not only about the economy, but also about security. We had so, so many people died because of terror attacks. I suspect Macron wants to really make sure that everything is done, possibly done, to prevent this from happening. Not that he might succeed. That I don't know. Uh, no one knows right now. But he's definitely trying to address that concern. That, that flow is also about addressing the French voters' concern on that matter.
1: Well, Geraldine, what will we next time we'll see, we'll see you in Sandy Cove.
2: I you? hope so. You know what? I'll bring a bottle of champagne. Perfect. Geraldine.
1: Proper one. A beautiful way to, to end. Thank you so much. That was great stuff.
2: <laughs> Take care of yourself over there. Okay. Right? <laughs>
1: Interesting stuff though from Geraldine. Brilliant stuff. Yeah. And do you remember two years ago? We did work on it. Remember I went to Le Pen's final yes. rally. Yes, final you did. rally yeah. in Marseille before the presidential election. Before the second round, the really important Yeah. Round. We did a big audio port. Yeah, on yeah, yeah. do we have any of that? Yeah, I have it. Grab somewhere. it, grab it there. And what was amazing was being in the Hippodrome in Marseille. Walking through, so Marseille is an amazing city, right? It's unbelievably African. It feels like you're in North Africa. Right, okay. So the marketplace is all Algerian, Moroccan, the whole thing. And it feels really different, right? Mm. But the Hippodrome is a basketball court. Right. Big, big inside one. And walking to the final Le Pen rally, it's quite interesting. So you leave around the train station, the market, which is all African, all North African and Central African. And you start walking. And as you walk, you realise everyone's white.
0: This yeah. was all Le Pen support. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah.
1: So so then you realise, who are these people? Who are the National Front in Marseille? Yeah. And you realise they're all Pinoir. These are the French people who lived in Algeria and Morocco, but mainly Algeria. The colonisers. Okay. The colonisers, right? Yeah. And they lived there. They created an entire French infrastructure there. An extraordinary thing. Mm. But in 1956... The French lost the Algerian war and a million French people, the Pied Noir. And they're called Black Feet. And the reason they're called Black Feet is when they went over to conquer. Now think about how, how unbelievably hot Algeria mm. yeah. is, right? Yeah. They go over and the soldiers were wearing black boots and they were sweating in the black boots. So when they took their shoes off after doing a bit of colonizing, their feet were black. And, and they were called stank because yeah. the polish had run into their skin because of the sweat. Yeah. And they were called
0: Pied Noir. This is and all the rest.
1: This is beau- This is, I tell you who it is. I tell you, it's Albert Camus. Who is he? Albert Camus is a very famous French writer. Also a very good goalkeeper. Right. Okay. Albert Camus, right, the French intellectual. Yeah. One of the great French intellectuals. Bloke who wrote L'étranger, The Stranger. Right. Also in a book called Killing an Arab.
0: Oh, Jesus. Really? But it
1: was actually about a very strange event. I read it years ago. And you know who actually took it up? The Cure took up killing an Arab as their first single. Ah,
0: that's where it came from. That's where it came from. It's the
1: title of an Albert Camus book. And this was about a, a murder that happened in Algeria, in Algiers, where an Arab was killed, murdered by a Pian Noir. And it's a bit like, have you ever read John Balmvill's Book of Evidence? No, no. That, well, that was about Malcolm MacArthur. Do you remember Malcolm MacArthur? I know the name. Who, a man who murdered a woman in Phoenix Park and was caught hiding in the Attorney General's house. That's
0: crazy, crazy, crazy story. story. Yeah. This happened in Ireland. It's all yeah. true, man, right?
1: <laughs> it's all true. It's bonkers. Right? And he's actually been released and he lives up in Glenagiri. Does he? Yeah. Right. right. So there there you go, right? But Camus was number one French, basically Sartre, Simon de Beauvoir and Camus were the basically the French existentialists, right? Yeah, yeah. Of the 1950s. But Camus was kicked out of Algeria. So he was one of these pain noir. And When I was looking at the French in Marine Le Pen's final rally, I just couldn't stop thinking about Camus and these people and what happened to them. And they do feel that they were kicked out of a part of France, right? They really feel that deeply. And it's their kids are the backbone of the Marseille-Le Pen movement. Really? And they had one expression, John, which is I thought was really interesting. It was on a chez nous, which is basically means we are in our house.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And yeah. we are in our house is a very, very loaded thing to say because it's basically saying to everybody else, you're kind of a guest. Yeah. This is our gaff.
0: Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: And you obey our free rules.
0: <laughs> it's not a free gaffe. Unfortunately, you obey our rules. So it was. I've got some audio from that.
1: Well, yeah, um, but again, what happened? The French have constructed a very clever way of making sure a centrist president always gets elected. Because what basically happens is the election in France for president goes in various different rounds. Mm. So at the beginning, there's loads of fellas in there, women and all sorts of communists and Marxists and fascists and every all sorts of thing, right? It's basically a bit like PR. So you vote for who you want in the first round, knowing full well that they won't get through. Yeah, and then, so, the, then you get the second round, the third round. But what basically happens is, at the end, last time around, it was Le Pen, in the, in the, the second last yeah. round, Mélenchon, who's a really old-style communist, right, talking Marx and all this good yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, Macron. Now, Macron had actually understood something that was going on in France. So, typically in France, it's been a fight between the Socialist Party of Mitterrand yeah. and the de Gaulle Party of Chirac, remember like Jacques Chirac, yeah. these of...
0: So it was very much a kind of a left and left-right, right. Left right, yeah. yeah. And it was very clear left and very right. Very
1: clear left, and it's basically a Second World War stalemate. Yeah. So
0: after the Second World okay, War, yeah, the Christian
1: yeah, Democrats yeah. emerge, the kind of the French, de Gaullist, Nationalist, Catholic, yada yada, and the Socialists, and they they were basically knocking it around for years between the pair of yeah. them. Macron was in the Socialist cabinet of François Hollande the guy who had an affair in the back of the Vespa. Remember the Vespa, him?
0: Yeah. I love that. He was hiding in the back of the Vespa, and he wasn't. He wasn't a, a kind of a particularly young, good-looking guy. No. Like, like Macron is. No, no,
1: no. But yeah, but listen, in France, okay, hey, hey. but uh, but Macron twigged and then he stabs Hollande in the back, and he says, "You know what? I've figured out this big idea that the middle class need a new story. It can't be just left. It can't be just right. He creates his own party called En Marche." Right. Which means, let's go for a walk. That's what it really means. Right. It means we're going, right? Right. JM, is not what it means? On a Vespa. We're walking, we're walking. yeah. We're walking. Okay, so it <laughs> means we're walking. On a Vespa. No, no, not on a Vespa. That's where you <laughs> have your affairs. Yeah. Right? But like, it's like Forza Italia. You know, Berlusconi's Force Italia. Yeah, Forza yeah, right? yeah, yeah. It was, was, going, was basically, Han, Italy. on the Italians, right? <laughs> That's right. So on March, he creates a party and he creates it in a few months, which is amazing. And he is an extraordinary campaigner. So they had no infrastructure. They had no infrastructure and they beat the left, the right. Yeah. And there's two right-wing parties, moderate right and more goalless right. Yeah, yeah. They beat the communists. They beat everyone. They beat the extreme right. So this is an extraordinary performance
0: now. So with, he, was, he was representing the middle ground and the middle class.
1: What he was representing, he understood that France has been in a malaise for a while. Yeah. That they, like, anyway, it's like, well, not unlike Brexit, they need a new story. So, you know, Brexit was the Brits' new story. Mm. It was a pretty old one, right? Yeah. But this is the idea that if I can seize the it's moment... It's a horror story. Yeah, it is a horror story. You know? If I can seize the moment, yeah. I can win this. And he did. Then the question is, picking up on what Geraldine said, what does Macron want? And it's quite clear to me that Macron wants to be not just the president of France, but the president of Europe, in, effect, in all but name.
0: right. So a little bit like Charlemagne.
1: John, I He's love your Char- Charlemagne.
0: He's the Charlemagne <laughs>
1: of the 21st century. He, John, that is a piece of genius. <laughs> the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither Roman nor holy. Exactly. Um, a lot
0: of good stuff happened during that period.
1: Well, as you've pointed out, John, the Holy Roman Empire is the embryo of the European Union. Yes. It's actually the embryo of the European Union. It's that arc from Italy... France and the western part of Germany. Yeah. Which is an essential it's essentially western Europe and it has a roman flavor. Yeah. And it has a roman legacy. But think about Macron now. He says, "Okay, my big gig is in all but name president of Europe." And Europe becomes a French Europe, not a German Europe. Cuz the Germans are a bit scattered. Right. right? The Brits are gone. Yeah. Think about the the think about the geography of this. Yeah. The Italians are enfeebled because they're worried about their own internal politics. Yeah. I'm the only dude with the momentum behind me. Slightly Napoleonic figure. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, Slightly. yeah. And he's small as well. He's small as well, exactly. <laughs> think about what that would mean for us. This yeah, is this, well, this that's, this, that's this, what I was going to say. This.
0: What does that mean for the rest of Europe, but particularly for Ireland? Well,
1: I think the sting and the tail for us, and we've got to be very cautious here, and we've got to figure out who our allies are from now on, Right. Sting in the tail is a French Europe is a centralized Europe. It's a banking union, which is a good thing, Mm -hmm. but it's a tax union. It's a fiscal union. It's more federalism, right? right. It's basically the European Union will raise taxes. Now, do you remember I was talking about how the euro came around on the sly? Yeah. It was a a small idea in the bottom drawer of somebody's desk in the French (laughs) treasury and suddenly becomes policy. Right? I think about now. Brits have gone. Consider Britain like German unification. Your big, big problem has disappeared itself if you're Macron. Yeah. Okay. They've walked off the pitch. The Germans are in a post Merkel world. Who are they? They're what trying are they to figure, figure themselves out. out? Right? Yeah. The Italians are in a problem. So Macron says, I want federalism. And what I want is I want to go quickly to there. Now, how do you get to a Fiscal union, common taxation. Yeah. You get there by first ironing out all the creases in taxation. And the big crease is the Irish yeah. tax on multinationals. And the French absolutely hate it. It's the French are always at the OECD saying... because They've been this, saying
0: it for years, yeah. Right.
1: Now, they have a moral case to say so. We have a right to veto, but Ireland doesn't like to veto. Ireland has never vetoed anything. And the reason well, we don't like to veto is Irish people want to be liked.
0: Well, it might be time to veto.
1: So then the question is, and it's true, it could be time to veto. Yeah. Ireland has always, that's why I was told, told about Irish. Irish people prefer to be liked than feared. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, I always try to explain this to foreigners. If you want to understand us, we want to be the first to Just laugh. like us. Yeah, <laughs> we're a great crack. But we don't want to be feared, right? We yeah. want to be liked. And that's the way Ireland negotiates. the way Irish people negotiate. In, in every area. Yeah, yeah. Now, that means who's our ally? Netherlands? The Dutch? Because the Dutch are low tax. Yeah. And the Scandies have always been a little bit arm's length in the EU. So think about the Scandies. The Danes in the EU, not in the Euro. Yeah. The Swedes in the EU, not in the Euro. So they've taken a very, very arm's length view. So in the future, I think Ireland will have to figure out alliances with Netherlands Denmark, and Sweden. And that's going to be the new arc.
0: That's interesting, yeah. Right?
1: Because France is going to be driving right through the centre, right? Taking Spain and Italy with it. In the other side of Europe, you have the proto-slightly right-wing, fascistic, Hungarians and Poles at the moment who are waltzing up what seems to me like a very dangerous cul-de-sac.
0: And... Then it's Northern Europe.
1: It's Northern Europe. And you know the funniest thing about the the EU? It might miss Brexit. (laughs) because Brexit was the only thing that kept us all together.
2: That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month.
1: Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch.
2: Forty-five dollars up front for three months, plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: So Brexit, is not just about Britain. Brexit is about what happens after it. And on Thursday, we're going to talk about the economics of two massive ramifications. The first one is, we just talked about tax. Yeah. The economics of tech and the economics of big tech, particularly after Airbnb was floated, it's now worth 90 billion and it's never made any money. It's it's never made money. So we're going to talk about the flotations. We're going to talk about the economics of tech because... Linking it back to Macron, Ireland has made a massive bet on Silicon Valley. And yep. Silicon Valley has embraced Ireland because, because of the tax in large part. Yep. Not totally, but in large part. So it's all of a piece, right? The other thing is the economics of Scottish independence. Because what well, no deal Brexit means Scots are gone. We're out of here. Yeah. Now, back to our point, Scotland goes independent, doesn't stop there. The ramifications for Ireland are when do we deal with Northern Ireland. So the economics of the Scots leaving and then what that does to Irish unity, Irish politics. The whole way we think about Ireland in the 21st century has changed profoundly because of what's happened this week.
0: So Thursday's a big episode. Big episode. I
1: know you're sitting there worried about what you're going to give that person you love for Christmas given the gift of knowledge with the Dave McWilliams podcast. We're going to give you for December only a full year's membership with a 20% discount. So for that person you love, who loves economics, loves learning, loves the crack, loves all this carry on, Dave McWilliams podcast, Christmas special present, patreon.com forward slash Dave McWilliams.